I want to take just a few weeks and really focus in on a life out of the pages of Scripture that I think can bring us some great encouragement. And so tonight, I really want us to consider the life of Abraham. And if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis, chapters 11 and 12. And as you're finding your place there, I'm sure you're familiar with this statement, um, warts and all. Um, That statement is actually attributed to an English statesman by the name of Oliver Cromwell, uh, who it said that when he was having his official portrait painted, um, he instructed the artist to paint him, quote, warts and all. And he was adamantly opposed to any notion of flattery. And so when we come to the scriptures and we encounter the lives of men and women in the pages of scripture, the same thing can be said about them. We find them warts and all. And it's one of the evidences of the inspiration of scripture. There's only one perfect person in the pages of scripture. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet everyone else who is mentioned in the pages of the Bible were men and women who had flaws Men and women who were not perfect, but men and women whom God used for his purposes. And that's certainly true with the life of Abraham. Uh, There's nothing airbrushed, nothing sugar-coated, nothing whitewashed about his life. What we're confronted with in the pages of Scripture is really the unvarnished truth. And so when God wants to teach us a truth, often what he does is that he wraps that truth in flesh and blood rather than just simply giving us um, theory, commands, precepts, which the Bible's full of commands and precepts, but it's also full of narrative. So much of the Bible is the narrative of how God has worked through the lives of individuals uh, in history. And uh, one person has said that biblical truth really thrives in the soil of real life where it bursts forth to life. It blooms and it bears fruit. And so think with me for just a second how we often see this in the pages of Scripture. Uh, When God wants to teach us a truth about his sovereignty in the circumstances of life, his sovereignty in the midst of suffering, um, he gives us the life of Job to consider. And I can't tell you how many people have been encouraged down through the centuries of time as they've looked at the life of Job, a man under pressure, a man experiencing grief, but worships God nonetheless. Or when God wants to present us with the truth of his providence, his providential control over the circumstances of life, uh, he directs our attention to the life of Joseph. And we're able to see how God works behind the scenes in the life of Joseph for Joseph's ultimate good, but ultimately for God's glory and for his purposes. Let me give you one more. Uh, Passionate worship. Rather than just simply instructing passionate worship, God gives us the life of David to look at and learn from. And so God uses narrative often to illustrate divine truth so that you and I have the opportunity to get a glimpse of it and see what it looks like in real time. It was the Apostle Paul who said in Romans chapter 15 that the things that were written before, that is the Old Testament, the things that were written in time past were written for our learning, 
They were written for our instruction that we, through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. And so one of the towering figures in the pages of God's word is that of Abraham. The life of Abraham, who's a man that illustrates for us what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. You know, there's a lot of talk about faith. There's a lot of talk about the importance of faith. But I want to ask this question. What exactly is faith? How might you define faith? And we frequently hear people say things like this. Uh, well, as long as you have faith, that's really the only thing that matters. I mean, that sounds good. Or sometimes the person will say this, uh, faith will see us through. And again, that sounds good. It looks good on a bumper sticker. It looks really good on an Instagram post. But it doesn't really mean anything. Because folks, faith is no better than its object. It's important that you understand the object of faith. We don't place our faith in faith. Because our faith is no better than the object of our faith. So faith is not all that matters. It's faith in Christ that's all that matters. Uh, faith will not see us through. It's faith in Christ that will see us through. And so when you think about faith, uh, faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is not belief in spite of the lack of evidence. Neither is faith uh, merely mental assent, agreeing to a set of facts and that kind of thing. Faith is the conviction that something is actually true in spite of the evidence that screams to the contrary. Uh, it's the assurance that something is real even when it can't be physically perceived. Uh, Manly Beasley uh, said this about faith. He said, faith is acting as if something is so even when it seems not to be so in order for it to be so, because God said it so. And that's what faith is. And, and, and so we really see this illustrated in the life of Abraham. And so I really want to just pick up a series of studies on the life of Abraham that I'm calling Walking by Faith, because Abraham is upheld in Scripture as really the father of faith, the father of the faithful. Now, to illustrate this, imagine for just a moment that you're wandering around in the desert. You know, a couple years ago, Anita and I had the opportunity uh, to travel out west, and uh, we spent about a week in Arizona. And uh, we had rented a car, we drove all over the state of Arizona, went down the tombstone, went up the flagstaff, went over to the Grand Canyon. Uh, but I was amazed when we were out in the desert at just the barren landscape of the desert. So I want you to imagine with me for just a minute that you're walking through that desert landscape. Um, your throat is parched with thirst, but suddenly up ahead you spot a water pump that's in the middle of nowhere. And uh, it looks like there's a well perhaps beneath this water pump. And you notice as you get closer to this water pump that there's a canteen that's hanging from the pump handle. And attached to the canteen, you find this note that simply reads this. Beneath your feet is all the water that you will ever need. But the pump will not work unless it's primed with water. 
The canteen contains exactly enough water to prime the pump. So you take the canteen in your hand, you shake it, you hear a little bit of water sloshing around in the canteen. You're absolutely parched with thirst, you're dying with thirst, and yet you know that you're faced with a decision. And the decision is this, will you believe the note and what the note says to do? Uh, What if it's a ruse? I mean, what if it's a cruel joke? What if it's a prank? What if there's nothing but dry sand beneath this pump in the middle of the desert? If you trust the message of the note and you pour out the little bit of water that's in the canteen, you could very literally be pouring your life away. So here's the decision. Will you place your trust in what you can touch, what you can see, what you can hear, or will you place your faith in the promise of that note? Well, this really sums up, this little illustration helps sum up the life of Abraham. Because the Bible says that Abraham was a man who believed the promises of God, and he was declared righteous through faith. There were multiple times in Abraham's life where he came to a point where really all he had to go on was nothing more than a canteen and a promise. But over again and over again in his life, we see that Abraham demonstrated that he was willing to believe the promises of God, pour out the contents of his canteen to prime the pump of God's blessing. Now, you know, the writer of Hebrews, uh, in that great faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because whoever would come near to God, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So Abraham is one of the most important men to have ever walked across the stage of human history. There's no greater person from the scriptures who can teach us in the school of faith than Abraham can. He's upheld in the pages of Scripture as the father of faith, and his life serves as a wonderful example of what it really means to walk by faith and not by sight. Now, let me tell you this. Uh, Abraham's life teaches us that faith is not simply something that we study. Uh, Faith is not simply something that we read about, but rather it's something that we practice. Because as believers, our faith does not grow Uh, by knowledge alone, but through obedience. And if you've ever felt like your faith was being tested, then you're in good company. Uh, True faith is always tested faith. In fact, someone has even said it this way, faith that can't be tested is faith that really can't be trusted. Which is why James says that it's the testing of our faith that produces patience, steadfastness, for the purpose of maturing us as believers, conforming us more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Abraham was a man of faith. His faith was tested. His faith was proven through the experiences of life. And his faith was not a blind leap in the dark, but it was grounded in the promises that God made to him that are recorded here in the pages of Scripture. Now, the story of Abraham begins uh, really in Genesis chapters 11 and 12 as we're introduced to him as Abram, and this is before God changes his name. 
And so really when you come to a study of his life, it would be easy for us to want to jump right into the first few verses of chapter 12, uh, where God issues a call to Abram to leave his country. And God establishes a covenant with him and promises to bless him and to uh, make him into a great nation. Uh, it'd be easy to, to start right there. But really, I think that we miss something when we fail to consider all that the Bible has to say about Abram's background. So really, there are a few things that I want you to consider. I want us to back up to chapter 11, and I want you to first notice with me what I'm calling the context of Abram's faith. Uh, The context of Abram's faith. We see this at the close of Genesis chapter 11, uh, really beginning there in verse number 27. Notice what the scripture says. Uh, The Bible says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And verse 30 says that Sarai was barren. She had no child. And so Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years and the Bible says that Terah died in Haran. So when you consider the context of Abraham's faith, uh, you're able to see it in contrast to the dark spiritual backdrop of his day. And really to understand this context, we we go back through the events of uh, really the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we're able to review history up until this point. Now if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 11 really records um, at least four key events. And of course, those events are the creation of the universe. Uh, You've got the fall of man that's recorded in Genesis chapter 3. You've got the judgment of the flood in the story of Noah. Uh, You've got the Tower of Babel and that whole episode there in Genesis chapter 11. And then you get to chapter 12, and from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through uh, Genesis 50, it's, it, the, sort, the story of the scripture sort of centers in around the lives of four key men whom we call the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, and then his son Joseph. Well, in the life of Abraham, the biblical record focuses in on one man through whom God promises to bring blessing to the world. Now, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, there's much that God has revealed about himself, about his redemptive purpose in the world. Uh, He's revealed what's wrong with human society. And really, from just the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you're able to understand that uh, the Bible says there's only one God, and this one God is creator and Lord over all. There aren't multiple gods. Uh, There's only one God. And this one God has created everything that we see. 
Uh, we're also able to understand that humanity has been made in the image of this God. Made to have a relationship with this God. Made after his likeness. Uh, we're also able to understand that sin has so marred God's creation that it's left it in a broken condition. And God, because he's holy, because he's righteous, he's got to punish sin. And yet God makes a promise in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that God is going to rescue and redeem his creation. Uh, and then we learn really through the life of Noah and through the life of Abraham that salvation is by grace through faith. So you think about this. All of this is really summed up in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. This is a lot of truth that's, been, that's revealed in these chapters. One God who's creator, humanity's made in his image, Sin has marred creation and has got to be judged by God. God will rescue his creation and salvation is by grace through faith. And so you, you get to Genesis chapter 11 and it's as if the biblical story focuses in on the life of, of one man, uh, Abram, because this is God's redemptive plan that's being put in motion here. God's going to bring blessing to the world He's going to bring a redeemer into the world through this one man, Abraham. Now, there's a lot that we can learn from his background. All of us understand the value of knowing a person's background. Because when you know a person's background, it helps you understand that person a whole lot better. And knowing that person's background helps you understand why a person thinks the way that he thinks why he does some of the things that he does. Well, Abram's background may be a whole lot different than what you would imagine at first. Uh, when we think of Abram or Abraham, we immediately associate him with the Jewish nation. He's the father of the Jews, the father of the Hebrews. He's the father of faith. Um, all of the world's three major religions attribute significance to Abraham. You've got Islam recognizes him, uh, Judaism recognizes him, and of course Christianity. So if you're not careful, you'll, you'll come under this assumption that this was always true of Abraham's life, that he was always this man of faith. But let me mention some things in his background that you may not have understood before. Uh, to begin with, Consider his background as far as a cultural understanding, where he comes from. The Bible says that the call of God comes to him while he's living in Ur of the Chaldees. We know that he lived some 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. We live 2,020 years after the birth of Christ. So that means that Abraham lived 4, 000, more than 4,000 years ago. We read at the end of Genesis 11 that Abram was born and raised in Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans. This was at the center of civilization in Mesopotamia. And if you look at it on a map, um, it was located in an area of Mesopotamia, which would be present-day Iraq. In fact, archaeologists refer to this region as the cradle of civilization because it's here that we find the earliest record of societies and uh, cities. Uh, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says this, few periods from ancient history are as well documented by artifacts and inscriptions as is the time of Abraham. So at the time, 
Ur of the Chaldeans was one of the largest cities in the world. It had a booming population. It was located on the southern bank of the Euphrates River, a little more than 150 miles south and east of present-day Baghdad. And up until the 20th century, uh, the city was thought to be a very primitive city with people living in primitive conditions, mud huts and that kind of thing. But archaeologists in the 20th century actually discovered something that said the opposite. They uncovered a civilization that seemed to be very advanced for its day. And so now, because of modern archaeology, we know that Ur of the Chaldeans was a city of wealth. It was a city of culture. It was a city where um, there was even a library located there, as well as a university for learning. And so all of the evidence points to this highly developed culture 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. And this is the cultural background that Abram comes from. And all of this fits well with the biblical narrative in Genesis chapter 11. Because according to Genesis 11, it was there on the plains of Shinar that man united in his rebellion against God. Man attempted to build a city with a tower whose heights reached into the heavens. This was generations before Abram's day but it would be the Tower of Babel. And you know the narrative there in the early part of chapter 11. God confuses the speech of humanity there at Babel. And so it will become known as Babylon later on in Scripture. But really it just represents the proud culture of humanity in rebellion against God. So when you think about the the culture that Abram comes from, he comes from a cultural background that's steeped in pride and rebellion against God. So he grows up in this background. Let me just say this. Even though that was 4,000 years ago, the world hasn't really changed that much, has it? Now, to be sure, technology has changed, but humanity and the core problem of humanity has not changed all that much because humanity is still in rebellion against our Creator. So that's his cultural background. You consider his religious background. His name Abram means exalted father. That's the name that his father Terah gives him at birth. And we know that the people of ancient Mesopotamia were polytheistic. And that simply means that they worshipped many gods. And even though God had destroyed the world in Noah's day, um, even though God started over with Noah and Noah's sons, You get a generation or two later, and the worship of man has become corrupted once more. Humanity begins to live by its own set of standards and rules. Society becomes pluralistic. The worship of God becomes replaced with idolatry. And the chief deity of Ur of the Chaldeans, where Abram was from, was the moon god. And there was a temple that was there located in Ur, um, devoted to the worship of the moon god. And so Abram's background involved the worship of idols. In fact, we're even told this later on in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, they served other gods. So that means that Abram's background prior to the call of God on his life 
was an idolatrous background. He's living in a culture where men are living according to their own dictates. Rather than seeking to know the one true God, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This was the spiritual climate. This was the religious background that God takes Abram from. So his cultural background, his religious background. Then you consider something about his social background here in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, We know that he comes from a close-knit family. And the head of the family, he's mentioned here in chapter 11, uh, Terah. And really, you'll notice that between the Tower of Babel episode and the story of Abram, there's this extended genealogy. Now, I know that the genealogy portions of Scripture are those passages that we tend to skip over when we're reading through the Bible. And a lot of that's because we can't pronounce the names, and sometimes we have a hard time seeing the significance of the genealogy uh, to our life. We want something practical, something we can sink our teeth into. Folks, let me tell you, when it comes to God's word, there is no insignificant detail. And that's true of the genealogies in the Bible. This genealogy here in Genesis chapter 11, it's important because it records the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promises. And if you go back through the genealogy here in Genesis, you'll notice that there are 10 generations from Noah to Abram. As Noah's sons and their families begin to populate the earth, attention is given here in Genesis to uh, Noah's son Shem and his descendants who become known as the Semitic peoples. Abram's father Terah was a descendant of Noah through Shem. So again, attention is really beginning to focus in on this family, the Semitic peoples. And in particular, Terah and his clan. And then even more specific, Terah's son, Abram. This is who God is going to establish his covenant with. This is whom God's going to bless in an act of grace. This is whom God is going to use to be an instrument through whom eventually he's going to bring his own son into the world. So Terah's family, they're all mentioned there in verse 26. The Bible says when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathers Abram. Nahor and Haran. Verse 27 says Haran is the father of Lot, but Haran dies an early death. Uh, Abram takes a wife for himself. Her name is Sarai. And then you'll notice in verse 30 that there's a tension that's introduced into his life account. And the tension is simply this. Sarah or Sarai is barren and the two of them have no children. That's not an insignificant detail because this is a tension that's going to play an important part in Abraham's life story. So Abram and Sarai were an unlikely pair through whom God would bring blessing to the world. God is using these unlikely instruments as a means of blessing. They're unlikely because they were childless. They were well past their prime when the call of God comes. So Culturally, Abram's background was humanistic. He comes from that cultured place, Ur of the Chaldeans. Religiously, Abram's background was pluralistic. The worship of idols characterized the life of his family, his father's household. Socially, Abram's background was unrealistic. 
Because here's a man who's devoted to his wife Sarai, but the two of them can't have any children. And in those days, that was absolutely anathema. It was a stigma for any Middle Eastern family or any Middle Eastern patriarch. So here's the point. Here's what I want you to keep in mind when you consider all of this in your mind. Your background is no hindrance whatsoever when it comes to God and his ultimate purposes. Uh, Faith understands that God works out the details of his plan in our lives even when he doesn't have much to work with. And let's just be honest. He doesn't have much to work with in my life. He doesn't have much to work with in your life. It's only by his grace and his mercy that he accomplishes anything through any of us. Because God always does extraordinary things through unlikely instruments. And why exactly is it that he does this? Well, remember what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, consider your calling, brethren, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things in the world to shame that which is strong. God chose what is despised in this world, even the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh can glory in his presence. God uses unlikely people, unlikely instruments, so that he alone gets the glory in it. And that's what he does in Abram's life. Uh, God takes people like, uh, uh, like Lottie Moon, uh, a simple girl from Virginia, and yet God will take her and use her to launch a, a missions movement. Or God takes a simple shoe salesman uh, like D.L. Moody and turns him into an evangelist who travels the world. God takes a country boy from North Carolina named Billy Graham and uses him to preach to more people in person than anyone else in human history. So if you ever feel like you're inadequate when it comes to the tasks that God calls you to, maybe even wondering whether or not your background is an impediment to God, then you can be encouraged, folks, when you look into the scriptures, when you consider the example of Abram in particular. So this is the context, then, of Abram's faith. Now, you get into chapter 12, and there's a second thing that we notice, and it's what I'm calling the call of his faith. Uh, Notice in verse number 1 of chapter 12, the Bible says that the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, now pay close attention to what God says to Abram here versus what uh, the men of Babel said to themselves back in chapter 11, verse number 4. Because, again, this is a symbol of man's pride in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Uh, Verse 4 of the 11th chapter says that they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And then you get into the next chapter, and here it's God who's speaking, but God's speaking to an unlikely individual, and God is saying, 
I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to do something as an act of mercy and grace in your life that you couldn't do for yourself. Man's pride says, let's rise up and make a name for ourselves. But God's grace and the way of faith says that God says, no, I'm going to make a name for you. I'm going to do something in you. I'm going to do something through you, through whom ultimately I'm going to bring blessing to the world. And so both in Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 12, you've got the way of pride, the way of unbelief that's illustrated in the 11th chapter, and it's juxtaposed against the way of faith, the way of grace that's illustrated in the life of Abram here in Genesis chapter 12. So in his grace, God calls Abram, this man who would become the model of saving faith and the righteousness that God gives that comes only through faith. And really his call here in Genesis chapter 12 is a watershed moment in the story of redemption. Because from this moment forward, the narrative is going to focus on Abram and his descendants, the Hebrews. God's promise that was made to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That promise is being progressively realized. The seed of the woman will also be the seed of Abraham. In other words, the promised redeemer would be a descendant of this man who's given so much focus and attention here in the pages of Genesis. So when God calls Abram here in this passage, there's a couple of things I want you to consider about his call. It's a call to forsake. Uh, God says, Abram, here's what I want you to do. Go out from your country. Go out from your kindred. Go out from your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. So God initiates this call in Abram's life and it's all of grace because Abram is living his life, minding his own business, just like the rest of his relatives there in Ur of the Chaldeans. And yet God calls him out of this life of spiritual darkness. God calls him out of this background of idolatry. God calls him to leave the life that he had known in Mesopotamia, to renounce idols, to set out from his father's house. And really it's a call for him to forsake the old life. They get over into the New Testament, uh, Stephen, in his sermon before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. The Bible says that the God of glory appeared to Abram while he was living there in Mesopotamia. And this revelation of God's glory stood out in contrast to the dead and lifeless idols that were worshipped in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then pay close attention to the fact that it's God who is speaking and, and Abram clearly hears the word of God. It's God's word that generates faith in Abram's heart. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Someone says, where does faith come from? Well, faith comes from God. Faith comes as it's generated in the heart through the word of God, as the word of God is being spoken, as the word of God is being preached, as the word of God is being declared. Now, I want to show you something here in the biblical text. If you go back up uh, to verse 31 in chapter 11, you'll notice that the Bible says that Terah took Abram his son 
He takes Lot, his grandson, which was Abram's nephew, Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and the Bible says that together they went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they come to Haran, they stop. They settle down in a place called Haran. So we know that the call of God came to Abram while he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans. And again, Stephen mentions this in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. Uh, he says, God spoke to Abram when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And God said to him, go out from your land, from your kindred. Go to the land that I will show you. And so he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. So Pay close attention to this. God appears to Abram as he's living in the spiritual darkness of Ur of the Chaldeans. God reveals himself and his glory to Abram. God gives him knowledge of the truth and an act of grace and mercy. And I really believe that the encounter that Abram had was much like the encounter that Moses had with God uh, many centuries later where God appears in grace to Moses in the form of a burning bush it's much like the encounter that Isaiah has where Isaiah has a vision of God. God reveals himself to Isaiah in the temple. But the point is that Abram now has a true knowledge of God. It's not something that he himself has stumbled upon. Now he has knowledge of God because God took the initiative to reveal himself to Abram. This is why Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, it's God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. It's God who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So it means faith is not just, a, it's not just mental assent. It's not agreeing to a set of facts. It's an encounter with the glory of the living God that results in a changed life. And any person who's ever been converted to faith in Jesus Christ has had this type of encounter where they're born again and they come to faith in God. And, and this is the work of God in that person's life as their eyes, their blind eyes have been opened to the reality and the beautiful truth of who Jesus Christ is. And then this faith results in obedient action. Faith is that which is initiated in the heart by God. It results in obedience to Jesus Christ. So this is what happens to Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans. And God issues his call to Abram. Now I imagine that Abram tried to convince his family to renounce their idol-worshiping ways, to turn their back on life in Ur of the Chaldeans and set out for Canaan. Verse 31 says that they all stop and they settle down in Haran, which is halfway to where God wanted him to be. And that's significant because it means that Abram moved in the general direction of Canaan, like God commanded him to, but he made it no further than Haran. Now I want you to listen to this. Um, Chuck Swindoll uh, said this, uh, he said, according to ancient inscriptions, the main trade routes from Damascus, Nineveh, and Carchemish, major cities in those days, he said they all converged in this city, the city of Haran. So perhaps lured by material abundance, lured by the opportunity to build wealth, 
Abram's caravan got sidetracked. More likely, however, another obstacle stood between Abram and complete obedience. Listen to this. He says, the moon god, whom Abram's family worshipped, had two primary seats of worship. The main one being Ur of the Chaldeans, and the second one being the city known as Haran. So it wouldn't be hard to imagine that Terah couldn't quite tear himself away from the religion that he had known all of his life in Ur of the Chaldeans. Which that's why God commands Abram to leave his family behind. To turn his back on all that he had known in his own life. Because God knew that they ultimately would be a distraction from his calling. The call to faith. And maybe this is why Stephen goes on in his sermon in Acts chapter 7 to say that it was only after Terah, Abram's father, it was only after he died that God removed Abram from Haran and led him into Canaan where he wanted him to be all along. Now, let me just simply ask you this question. On a Wednesday night, middle of the week, it's a question that I want you, don't answer it too quickly. I want you to ponder this question in your mind and in your heart. What exactly is it that's distracting you, pulling you away from the call of God to faith in Jesus Christ? Because, folks, the world is full of distractions. Life is full of distractions. The enemy comes along and wants to distract us from God's best in Jesus Christ and often the way that he'll do that is not by, not by enticing you to something bad, but sometimes it's the good that becomes the enemy of the best. And there are a number of distractions that can lead us away from a life of obedient faith, a life of forsaking uh, the old life, the old way of life. So God's not interested in your lip service. Faith is not simply lip service. Faith does not just simply agree to a set of facts. Uh, God can see through all of the superficial and all of the shallow commitments that we make in the name of faith. And if he's got you in his sights, don't be surprised when he begins to strip away all that you hold dear, but ultimately distracts you from a life of obedient faith. So there's this call to forsake that comes to Abram. There's a call to follow. He's told to follow God all the way into the land of promise. God promised to lead him to a land that he himself would show. God doesn't give him any of the details up front. He just tells him to follow me. I'm going to lead you into a land that I'm going to show you. And then it's a call to faith. To faith. He's, he's saved by grace through faith. And from this moment forward in his life, he's to live by faith in the God who has spoken. And his obedience to God's call, this is evidence of his faith. And as evidence of this, or for this reason, he's held up as the original father of faith. Now, I've got to stop here tonight. But let me leave you with just some final principles. Uh, some things for you to consider. Uh, to begin with, the background you come from, it's very unique. All of us come from unique backgrounds. But don't ever underestimate the impact that you can have on someone else. 
the way that God can use you and your unique background to minister to someone else. I heard Alistair Begg say this. He said that you can't control the background that you come from, but you do have something to say about the background that you pass on to others, such as your children, the things that they see emulated, modeled in your life as a man or woman of faith. This can be something that you can pass on to them that can help them in their background. So your background is unique, but don't ever underestimate the impact that it can have on someone else. A second principle is this. The purposes of God are not hindered by your background. So no is never the right answer to any call from God. You may not necessarily understand the call of God. You may not understand all of the details and that kind of thing. But no is never the answer. There are no excuses that you can give and that you can make for God's call on your life. And then faith. Faith doesn't take halfway measures. So renounce the self-life and as a believer, follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Every ounce within me as a believer has to fight daily against self. And the Christian life is a crucified life. The old me has been crucified with Christ, and yet I live. Yet it's not me, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. This is why Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, the same will save it. So what is faith? The writer of Hebrews says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. It's the conviction that something is so in spite of evidence that seems to scream to the contrary. And it's the assurance that something is real even when it can't be physically perceived. Faith is acting as if something is so when it seems not to be so in order for it to be so because God has said so. And this is a principle that we'll see illustrated in the life of Abraham over and over and over again. So Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Lord, thank you that salvation is by grace through faith in your son alone. It's not by our works it's not by self-effort, but it's only as in grace, Lord, you speak into the darkness where we live, and you rescue us from sin, you rescue us from self, and the light of Jesus Christ is shown into our souls. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that Abraham is an example of faith, and that we learn from his life that the righteous shall live by faith. To be declared right. Faith, faith means that even when I can't see it, Lord, I simply believe your word. And we're declared righteous on the basis of faith in your son, Jesus. So Lord, tonight, as your people are faced with so many different issues, and Lord, we pray for peace, we pray for comfort, uh, God, we pray for those who have lost loved ones in recent days. 
Lord, in our church family, sickness, uh, Lord, separation, Lord, in a time of difficulty in our country, many of us are separated from loved ones. I think about those who have aged, aged parents that they can't see. Lord, I pray for peace in their life. Uh, Lord, for our friends and our family and our loved ones who don't know you, Lord, we pray for salvation. God, we pray that you use the, the pain of difficult circumstances to get the attention of people, Lord, in our nation tonight. Uh, Father, we pray that the time would come when we're able to put all of this behind us and move forward as a church and be gathered together again. And I so look forward to that, Lord. I pray for those who are in government, who are making decisions. God, we pray that you give them the wisdom that they need. And God, give us the faith and the courage to not live our lives on the basis of fear. There's going to come a point in time where all of us as believers are going to have to face reality. We can't live our lives cloistered away from the rest of the world. And yet, God, we pray that you would help us be patient until we're able to have church again. Lord, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for your goodness. May you be honored in everything that's said and done. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.